you pray with me? Father, we <clears throat> acknowledge unfailing love that we don't deserve. We acknowledge unfathomable holiness that we can't even imagine. But that is you. And so, God, what a joy to hear the voices of your people mixed to sing these great truths to you. Not because you need to know them, but because you want to hear them from us. To sing them to one another. To, to exhort one another to hold to truths that we believe to be true, but need to experience as we sing those to ourselves. God, to unite our own hearts with you, a holy and loving God. God, it's beautiful to hear the voices of your people. I know that's more beautiful to you than it is to us. And so I pray, Father, right now that you would fill every person here with your spirit, that you would lead those who need to find life in you for the very first time to that place of experiencing life by leaving a life of sin and embracing you, Jesus, as Savior and King that you would lead those of us who are your disciples to find greater life in you, to hold fast to your truths. Bring us life, God, for our good and your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, many years ago, when I was in graduate school, um, I worked a job at a company in downtown Portland and got into a conversation at one point with a coworker a middle-aged lady, and somehow the conversation had turned to marriage, the subject of marriage, and she uh, expressed significant and pretty unfiltered and raw disdain for the whole idea of marriage. It kind of took me aback a little bit. Um, she had actually was in a long-term and, and seemingly fairly stable relationship with the guy that she lived with and had been for several years, but uh, while I don't remember all the details of her words, I remember the essence of what she said. Um, she was telling me things like, you know, why would we need a piece of paper? You know, referring to a marriage license, right? Why would we need a piece of paper? Um, what business is it of the governments who I love and how I love? She just saw no, there's no room in her view for that at all. Besides, she went on and said, um, we're pretty happy with each other, and, and that's great, and we have been for a while, but man, if I ever decide that I'm not happy in this relationship, I'm out. <laughs> and in her mind, you know, formalizing the relationship through marriage and making it all legal and that kind of stuff would just make it harder and messier to get out of if it was no longer meeting her needs. She saw no purpose for that. And the truth is, her views are pretty common today. They're pretty common. Uh, just based on the person she was, um, she was like this with everything. She was pretty caustic and pretty blunt with how she said it. But actually, she wasn't saying anything that many, many people don't actually believe. In fact, I think they're probably more common of you now than they were, whatever, 20, 25 years ago when she and I were first having this conversation. The way Americans in general have understood marriage has been undergoing significant change for some time. And then, of course, this last year, the pandemic year, put so much stress on all of our relationships and so many facets of our lives, including our marriages, that we felt like now is a good time to spend a few Sundays looking to God's Word for some guidance specifically on this subject of marriage. So we started last week, and we're going to continue talking now, this Sunday about marriage matters. Now, like I said last week, if you're, if you're here with us or you're tuning in and you immediately said, oh, wait a minute, I'm single, so I can just tune out for the next five weeks, let me encourage you not to do that, to hang with us, because while this is a sermon series about marriage, it's not for married people uh, only. It's not for married people only. This is a series for everyone. God wants marriage to be held in honor amongst all of his people. We saw that last week from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. He wants all of God's people, married and unmarried, to hold marriage in high honor, which tells us that for God, marriage is something way more than, it's about way more than just any given two people who happen to be married to each other. So marriage isn't just a relationship between this husband and this wife. It is a reality that all of God's people should hold in high honor. And as we saw, and that's because as we saw last week, marriage reflects his relationship to all of us as people. God is trying to say some really important things about us and about himself, and he's using marriage 
to do it. And so that makes it relevant to all of us. Plus, on a more practical level, while marriages are the focus of this sermon series, all of the things that we learn every week, including this morning, will have applications to many, many different relationships with family members, close friends, other members of our local church, and so forth. So there's something here for all of us. Um, Our main text for this whole series is the Bible's probably longest uh, passage of Scripture on the subject of marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. And rather than working through that text systematically, kind of verse by verse, what we're going to do throughout this series is come back to different parts of it because that passage puts so many different facets of marriage on display. So we're going to go to different parts of it each week and look at a different facet or aspect of marriage and then also springboard into other passages of Scripture. And uh, if you were with us last week or tuned into our live stream, you saw that we're doing this a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to talk about an an overview of what the Bible teaches of each of these facets for a little while, and then uh, toward the end of what would normally be our sermon time, I'm inviting different people up onto the platform to sit here at this table with me and just have a bit of a personal conversation about the ideas that we just saw in Scripture. And here's the thinking behind that. Um, I'm not an expert on any of these issues. Nobody that comes up here and joins me on the platform is like an expert. That's not what this is about. It's not like we're the panel. Come find out how to do marriage from us. Rather, it's just a bunch of people who are willing to honestly say, hey, we'll let our guard down a little bit before our church family and and talk about the, the struggles of marriage, the successes of marriage, and how some of these ideas that we're talking about have worked out in our own relationship. So the goal is just to see how some of these ideas get enfleshed, so to speak, how they play out in the lives of individual couples. So uh, last week, my wife Amy joined me on the platform, and she will again later uh, in the series. This morning, uh, Jim and Kathy are going to come up and talk with me a little bit later in our service, so I look forward to that. Last week, we talked about the glory of marriage, and today we're going to talk about the power of promising, the power of promising, the fact that marriage is a, uh, what the Bible calls a covenant relationship. And what we're going to see is that unconditional commitment leads to relational happiness, not the other way around. I think modern America has a pretty different view of that. We sort of struggle with that idea. You know, I'll get, see if there's happiness here, and then if so, maybe I'll make the commitment. But the Bible's actually going to tell us that unconditional commitment leads to relational intimacy and happiness, not the other way around. And so when the Bible calls marriage a covenant, that's a very good thing. We're going to start this morning in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them there. And here, the Bible actually quotes... The New Testament quotes the Old Testament. The Bible quotes itself. Ephesians 5.31 is the Bible quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And the Bible says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning that we could behold wondrous and beautiful things from your word. And it is for our good and your glory we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Recently, for the first time in 26 years of marriage, Amy and I did something we've never done before. Many of you have probably done it numerous times, but we had never done it before. We changed our car insurance. You know, all those commercials about if you just call us, you can save X percent on car insurance. By the way, why can every single company say that? Like somebody's lying. Anyway, I don't know what's going on with that. But we've just just never chosen to do that. And the reason, largely, that we've never chosen to do it, to be honest, um, we had insurance that was, was, it was higher price than what we probably strictly had to pay, like I'm sure we could have found similar coverage at a, at a, a slightly less premium, but um, we really, I mean, we're happy with the company and the service we got, but we also really liked our insurance agent. Uh, Amy and I had met this guy right after we got married, we moved up here and uh, bought insurance policies from him, and just over the years, we actually kind of built something of a relationship with this guy. I mean, I've got his cell number, he's got mine, it's, it's not like we're over at each other's houses at Thanksgiving or anything, but, but we know each other, we've actually communicated with each other, we've interacted at beyond just a business level, we really liked him, and so we were happy to continue uh, to support him and to have him be our insurance agent, but last year, that agent that we had for 25, 26 years left the company that we were with. And that changed the game for us. Now we didn't just have this great relationship with this guy, we just had high-priced car insurance. 
And so we did what so many have done, like, hey, wait a minute, maybe all those commercials make sense, right? So we start looking around, and we found a better deal, and we switched our car insurance company. And you see, that's how it works in a business relationship, right? It's a consumer relationship. Uh, We were willing to pay even a higher price because we liked what we got in return. But once that situation changed, we're no longer willing to pay that price. So sorry, it's over. Our policy gets handed to some insurance agent we've never heard of before. And I'm like, sorry, the one and only communication you're going to hear from us is cancel our policies. We're going somewhere else. I mean, that kind of stinks, right? But that's the relationship. It's a business. It's a consumer relationship. That's, That's how it works in a free market economy. You stick with an insurance company or a doctor or a athletic club or a grocery store as long as you're happy with the uh what you know what you're getting for what you're putting into it and if you're not you change we understand that that's how it works yet increasingly we as americans are seeing not just our business relationships but all of life through the lens of cost benefit analysis increasingly more and more there's still a few exceptions but there are fewer and fewer as time goes on more and more things are seen as what am i getting out versus what i'm putting in and this is true of relationships as well including marriages these days people are interested in a return on investment right and you hear the the business language there right i'm I'm willing to set aside time and money to take you out on dates and so forth and give myself to you but i better feel like there's there's something in return and if i get married and i start to feel like my spouse is only giving 70 percent of what they should do then the reaction is fine then i'm only gonna give 70 percent of what i think i should do because you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain so i'm gonna lower my premium right this is how we're dealing with relationships and until you up the service i'm not going to up the premium you know i have to there's no way i'm going to stay in a long-term relationship where i'm giving way more than i'm getting that is one of the most unthinkable horrific places to end up in the mind of modern americans do you know that god gets a really lousy return on investment tim keller put it this way God is in the longest-lived, worst marriage in the history of the world. Oh, the first time I read that quote, I just went, oh, that's gold. (laughs) God has invested himself in people who constantly turn their backs on him. In the Old Testament, he uses unfaithful marriage, adultery, broken marriage, to depict his relationship with us as people who leave him over and over and over again, and yet he stays, and yet he stays. And since marriage reflects God's relationship with his people, that's what we saw last week, and since God has bound himself to us as people unconditionally in what the Bible calls a covenant, it's no surprise to see marriage also described as a covenant. That's what we see here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. That word, um, hold fast to, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Some of your English translations say, shall cleave to his wife. That's kind of an older English term. The, the word quoting there from the Old Testament, the Hebrew text, the, the old Hebrew word literally means to stick to, to stick with. You might think of it in modern terms as like a man and a wife when they come together, they, they glue to one another. Like this is not something you casually break. You're now a new partnership that is not easily dissolved. I'm not much of a woodworker, but I got a good illustration of this a number of years ago. I built my wife, Amy, this huge planter box. She found a, plan, a set of plans online. She loved it. I'm like, yeah, I think even I can do that. So like, I got plywood and trim boards and cut it, and I built this box. It was like seven feet long and like three feet high. It was this great big thing, and we planted in it for years. It was out on her deck, but after many, many years of Pacific Northwest winters, naturally, you know, water starts seeping into the cracks and it starts to kind of warp the wood a little bit and then it starts to rot. And eventually, after years of patching it and maintaining it, it finally lived its useful life. And it was time to say goodbye to the old planter box and take it apart. So I emptied all the soil and the drainage rocks and everything out of it. And I started breaking the sides down. I thought, this thing is just going to fall apart. Like I could see how much rot was in there now because of water that had gotten inside of it over the years. And so the corners where I had joined two pieces of plywood, I grabbed one of them and I just pushed and it just like, poof, just, you know, came apart. I was like, oh wow, these these things are just going to fall apart. But I got to two of those four corners and they would not budge. Like I started pushing on one of them and the corner wouldn't come. And so I stepped back and I kicked it with all my force. And the plywood sheet snapped because it was rotted and the corner was still joined. 
I was like, check out my mad woodworking skills. I nailed that corner joint. That was awesome. I actually had this thing like as a teepee. There's two pieces that broke off from their plywood sheets and I put it down on my, my deck and I stomped on it to bust that corner and I stomped on it and the plywood sheets just broke more. And the corner actually still stayed joined. What a picture of marriage. God is like, yeah, husband, you were part of this plywood sheet. That was your family of origin. Wife, you were part of this plywood sheet. And now that's broken off and you are stuck together. You're a new unit that is even different than and stronger than the previous ones. You leave those families of origin and you become your own unit. That's a covenant. And the Bible consistently describes marriage in these terms. At one point in the Old Testament, um, some of the, the men in God's, uh, among God's people, the Israelites, are really upset with God because they're like doing all the right things. They're going to the temple. That's like going to church, right? They're offering their sacrifices. They're doing all the right religious things. And God is like, I want nothing to do with that. And he rejects their religious service. And they're like, we're God. God, we're your people. We're doing what you want. Why would you reject us? They're all kind of like, you know, self-righteous and a little indignant with God. And God explains. He says, you want to know Why? It's because, this is Malachi 2.14, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see the language? They're like, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all the right things. I'm going to put on the nice church face, but at home I don't care about my wife and I've left her and I'm gone off and I've done other things to break my marriage covenant. And God says, that is a sacred covenant. You can't break that. You expect me to be happy with you when you're treating that covenant that way? That's how important that covenant is to me. And similarly, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17 refers to a woman who commits adultery as one who, quote, forsakes the companion of her youth, her husband, and forgets the covenant of her God. You see, the seamless way that the Bible talks about the covenant relationship people have with God and the covenant relationship within a marriage because the one reflects the other. So according to God, marriage is a covenant. It's a binding relationship in which we commit to live 100% for the good of the other, no matter the cost to us for life. Now, that's a really important definition. What I want to do is spend the rest of our time this morning just touching on some of how incredible that is, some of how beautiful that is, because in modern American society, I think we really wrestle with this idea. We don't see long-term commitment as a beautiful thing. We tend to see it as a confining or a restrictive and sort of a life-killing thing. When people make covenants to one another, it leads to all sorts of bad outcomes, and the Bible says, no, 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 it leads to beautiful outcomes. So I want to touch briefly on a couple of those beautiful outcomes. Just before we do that, we do need to acknowledge that in this day and age, being the sinners that we are, covenant relationships often do lead to bad outcomes. In our experience, covenant does go bad. And so when people are skeptical about the beauty of a biblical covenant in marriage, they do have some experiential basis for it. Covenants can go bad in a lot of ways, primarily through either neglect or hostility. You know, neglect is basically when when there's a covenant relationship between two people that leads me to then say, oh, now that you're stuck, I can take you for granted. I can take you for granted. You know, like classic cases would be like, for example, you know, the lady who wants to attract a spouse and so she slims down and loses weight and gets her hair done and makes herself as beautiful as she can. She finally attracts a guy and then as soon as they get married, she just lets herself go, right? Put on 50 pounds and never comb my hair, never put on makeup. And the guy's like, whoa, wait a minute, who did you become? I don't need to be anything for you anymore. You're stuck. I can take you for granted. Or similarly, a husband who's, or sorry, a, a young man who's trying to court a lady and he's like super attentive to her, right? And he figures out everything that she likes and he takes her to the places she likes to go and he pays for it. He buys her the flowers she loves to get. He spends time listening to her and connecting with her. He makes her feel like a million bucks because he loves her. And then they get married and then he's like, no, I don't want to talk to you. I want to go hang out with my buddies and watch football. And she's like, whoa, wh what happened? I thought you loved me. Yeah, I had to work at it for a while, but now I don't have to anymore. You're stuck, right? That's that kind of apathetic neglect that covenants sometimes lead us into. I don't have to work at it anymore. That's not what Scripture says. It can kill a marriage. We just assume the other person is supposed to stay stuck because they made a covenant. I shouldn't have to. It'll kill your marriage. But sometimes it goes from neglect into outright hostility. If you're back in Ephesians 5, our text concludes with this verse, the very last verse in it, verse 33. Referring to husbands, it says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Those are important clarifications to make when sinners become married. Verse 33 tells wives to respect their husbands because wives have immense power to either build up or undercut their husband's sense of self-worth through their words and through their actions. And ladies, if you're married or if you're interested in being married, I have to say this is just me, it's just personal observation, totally anecdotal, but I think that's a power that a lot of women either are totally blind to or severely underestimate. But your ability to change the tone of your husband's life and the tone of your home through your own caustic, nagging, and critical words is incredibly powerful. Proverbs 21.19 says, It is better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Ladies, that's God talking. I didn't say that. That is God talking. Like seriously, that kind of, of, of quarrelsomeness and naggingness can absolutely cut and tear a guy down. There are so many times over the years that I've come into um, issues that I couldn't figure out or I was criticized by somebody else, maybe fairly, maybe not, and I'm frustrated and I'm a little discouraged that maybe I'm not doing well and I go home and I talk to my wife and she's like, well, okay, there's truth in that and there's truth in that. Maybe there's lessons for you to learn, but don't, this is what I see in you. And that's not who you are. This is who you are. And it totally changes the tenor of the conversation for me. Five people can tell me I'm a loser. Amy can tell me I'm a winner and I'm good. I don't have to go home with the five of you. You have to deal with it. (laughs) She has incredible power. But that power can be used to destroy a person and destroy a marriage. The Bible warns us against it. But it also tells husbands to love and cherish their wives. In Colossians 3.19, the Apostle Paul, who's writing Ephesians 5, says the same thing again, but he puts a different spin on it. In Colossians 3.19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, why would he have to say that to us, guys? Do not be harsh. Because anybody who is looking around at the current society, anybody who knows anything about history, knows that history is riddled with men who dominate and domineer women. To the place of verbal and emotional abuse is the language we talk about that today, and often and especially even physical abuse. That is never, ever okay. That's why the Bible's putting these clarifications in here. Guys, a covenant does not, it makes her your partner, not your property. Like you don't get to use her and do with her as the king of your home whatever you want. That is not what a covenant means in the Bible. And men, if you are in a place where you are being harsh with your wives, or especially if there's physical abuse going, it has, it has to stop. And not like gradually, it has to stop now. You need to get some significant help. And if you don't know where to get it, there are resources in the community, there are resources here at our church. Call us, call me. I will get you connected with the help that you need. But it has to stop, not eventually, not gradually, but now. Ladies, if you're in a place where your husband is being physically abusive with you, you need to get some help. Man, I know that's easy for me to say. I know that brings up so many complicated things. I get it. But there are resources in the community. There are resources here at the church. Reach out. We will be safe and wise with the information. But that is never, ever okay. We associate all-in covenant commitments with so many bad things. But I think when we open up the pages of the Bible, we're like this one man, one woman for life thing. That's just like whatever. That feels just like a relic of a bygone era. We are so much more sophisticated than that. We've grown beyond that. We don't see the beauty of it. And yet God presents it as something beautiful. Because the kind of covenant that a marriage is made up of in God's mind, it's a specific kind. It's one in which each spouse dedicates themselves 100% to the good of the other. And here's what's so beautiful about that. I'm going to look at just briefly this morning three facets of what makes a covenant such a beautiful thing. First, promising the covenant creates the environment that makes relational intimacy and passion grow. We're also going to see that it, it, has, it also has the power to change us. And thirdly, it shows God to us in a very powerful way. So just a couple minutes briefly on each one of these. First of all, a covenant promising is what creates the structure for a relationship to grow in intimacy and passion. 
I mentioned earlier, I'm not much of a woodworker. I'm also not much of a, a landscape designer. If you're getting the impression that I dabble in a lot of things and I'm not really good at anything, you're probably right. But Amy and I have had the chance to plant a number of plants over the years. When we first moved into our house, there's this giant blue spruce tree in the front yard. It was all overgrown. It was gangly. The roots were starting to rip up the driveway, and so the tree had to go. We had it taken out. And we're like, now we got this place. we got to plant a new tree. So we talked to somebody about a landscape plan who knows what they're talking about, and we decided to go out and buy a magnolia tree, and we planted this thing. So I dug a hole in the ground, which in southwest Beaverton, where I live, means like you know, you're digging all sorts of clay out of the ground, right? This heavy clay-like soil. And we dig the, the hole, and we put the, the new tree in in there, and I, you know, we knew enough to know you don't just dump the old soil back in. You have to amend it. So we're adding like peat moss and, and some kind of plant food fertilizer, all this kind of stuff to amend the soil to help the tree take root and grow. That was several years ago, and uh, it's one of my gardening successes. It was like the corner on that planter box. I'm like, hey, I've probably killed several plants in my years, but we got it with this tree, right? Today, that tree's twice as tall as it was when we planted it, and its trunk, while initially it was like about as thick as a, maybe a paper towel roll, you know, now it's like as thick as my arm, which is a little thicker than a paper towel roll. Maybe not much. <laughs> Bad analogy, but the point is the tree's growing, right? And it's really cool to see it. It's like, man, that thing is thriving. But you can't just dump a tree in any old soil and expect it to thrive. Nor can you just dump any relationship on any two people and just expect that there's going to be intimacy, like, you have to work at that. You have to tend it. You have to create the right environment for intimacy and passion to grow. So the question is, what is the fertilizer, so to speak, for relational intimacy? Do you know that a huge ingredient in that fertilizer is promising? It's promising. And this is where I think we're, we're tempted as a society to get this totally backwards. If there's enough spark, if there's enough intimacy and passion, maybe I'll commit. But it doesn't work that way. Once I commit, I suddenly get intimacy and passion. You see, because the promise creates a safety. It creates a safety in a relationship where I can really be me. I can show you who I really am, and I'm not afraid, or maybe I feel some fear, but bottom line is I'm choosing to trust the promise. You're not going to leave, even if you see the real me. Again, this applies to so many relationships, and so true in marriages. If I trust that you're not going to leave, I can finally take my mask off, I can finally quit pretending. I can finally quit trying to hide all of the real, the real me and I can be honest about it and then start to deal with it and change and you become a partner in that journey, not somebody who's going to leave because you're like, oh my gosh, you are so selfish, I'm out of here. I didn't count on that. And when I reveal the real me, that's where intimacy takes place, right? You see, one of the paradoxes is if it's a consumer relationship, then you always have to market yourself. You always have to convince the other person, hey, it's worth you to continue to stay with me, and so I'm going to constantly hide my worst parts and try to show off my best parts, which means you're never really seeing the real me. There will always be a barrier, and then we wonder why, gee, we seem to like each other, but there's just no intimacy. It's because we're not showing each other the real us. And we're not doing that because we're afraid the other person will leave. There's no security there. See, if I don't have that safety, I will hide my faults. But here's the other thing. It's not just about getting to know one another better. It's also that this is what fuels passion, even romantic passion in a relationship. You know, the initial attraction and thrill that you get when you meet that, that special someone, you start dating each other, it's almost electric, right? I remember back to the, the years that Amy and I were dating and then eventually engaged, you know, and I would love to just put my arms around her waist and hold her close to me and look in her beautiful brown eyes. And it was just exciting, the physical touch. You know, there's kind of an ego thing there too. He chose me, she chose me, you know. Uh, you're, you're all a euphoric about this future of your life together because of how you make one another feel. It's like a drug, it's almost addictive. But of course, everybody knows that over time that fades it fades as, you know, the, the initial thrill of infatuation that was born of newness transitions into the well-worn and the routine. Um, you know, the, the choice of me transitions into, oh, this is what this person is really like. <laughs> and the romanticized hopes give way to just the daily realities of living together. And I'm not even talking about bad marriages. I'm just talking about ongoing reality of life. If, I've, if my sense of passion in a relationship has to keep fueling that initial attraction, it's, it's a hopeless long-term prospect. But just because I said that fades, that doesn't mean that passion and excitement and romance go away. They actually can get replaced with something much deeper, but only if promising is there. 
the deeper and more lasting passion that takes its place is just born of life together over time and deep experience. I still enjoy putting my arms around my wife and holding her close, and her eyes are still pretty, but when I look in her eyes, I see something much more now. We have sinned against each other and been reconciled to each other so many times. I can't even count them. We've been through so many hard things together and done them as a team and survived on the other side of it. And honestly, we see all of one another's failings. Those pretty brown eyes know me sometimes better than I know myself. She knows everything and she hasn't left. And that sparks a different kind of attraction that says, oh man, I want to put my arms around you and, well, we'll just stop there. It's a different kind of a passion. It's a little bit less like the fireworks that go off on the 4th of July, you know, where they just burn blazing hot and make everybody go, ooh, ah, and then they just go away. Just constantly leaving us hungry for the next thrill. And it's a lot more like that strong fire burning in the wood stove where you add a little fuel and you poke it and boom, the flames spark up again and it warms the whole house and delights your heart. It's much more lasting and it's much more fulfilling. And all of that comes because we've stuck with each other. You see, promising creates the environment where intimacy and passion can actually sustain. And that's a beautiful thing. But you know what? Promising also changes us. That's the second aspect of the beauty of this that we need to see this morning. Promising has the power to change us. Because for marriages to thrive and grow, grow and thrive over the long haul, people have to change, right? We know that. We know that. We have to change. But here's the funny thing about change. We resist change. All of us do. Because change hurts. Change is uncomfortable. Change is demanding. And nobody chooses change. Nobody chooses uncomfortableness or or hurt or pain unless there's a much greater benefit on the other end of it that we're convinced of. But we don't just naturally pick pain. But the reality of the promising helps us say, if I'm going to keep this promise, I have to change. And if I believe in the power of that, then it's going to stretch me into something I would never do if that covenant relationship wasn't there. This has been so true for Amy and I. Many years ago, we went and saw a friend of mine who is a professional counselor. She and I were both pretty competent people, and we got married, and so we're like, you know, in our arrogance, we're like, we can solve any problem. We didn't think we were thinking that way, but that's how we were thinking. And a few years into our marriage, we just ran into some issues, not so much with one another, but there was just like all this stress in our life, and we, we weren't able to figure it out. And so we're like, hey, let's go talk to my friend Dave. Maybe he can help us understand something. So we had a couple sessions with a counselor, and he did what counselor, good counselors do. He kind of helped us see that, yeah, your problem isn't out there. Your problem is like inside yourselves. And we're like, whoa, that's uncomfortable. And, and my wife, she told me I could share this. Her big thing was like her expectations of herself were ridiculously high and totally unrealistic. So part of the reason she was so stressed out is she was constantly doing twice as much as anybody else would do and still never feeling like it was enough. But then here became my problem. I'm like, wow, yeah, that's a big problem. She ought to change that. <laughs> my problem is at one point, the counselor turns and says, and you got to help her. You got to start helping her. What do you mean start helping her? I'm a good husband. Because you see, I saw my wife's competencies, and she has many, and I would regularly affirm her and praise her for that. So I'm being a good husband, right? And that's true, I was. But he helped me reframe it and understand, actually, at that point, she doesn't need an girl from you. She needs some help. <laughs> Get up off your duff and start helping out because you just continue to let her take all this stuff on. And if she's going to be able to reframe her stuff, you've got to reframe yours. And I'm like, well, that's uncomfortable. I was here so you could fix my wife, not me. I mean, well, I wasn't thinking that, was I? Oh, gosh, I guess I was. Now what am I going to do with it? I have to change. I don't want to change. There's reasons I don't help. It's because I'm comfortable in my little me world, and my me world's going to have to change if I'm going to be 100% devoted to her good. There's been three covenant relationships throughout the course of my adulthood that have been huge change agents in my life, huge tools of God's sanctification in my life. One of them is pastoring, where you have a covenant relationship to spiritually shepherd this group of people. Another is parenting, where you have a covenant relationship to raise these children and do it well. And then, of course, the third is marriage. 
all three of those have regularly demanded that I give of myself to people at times when I don't necessarily feel like I can or want to, and it doesn't matter how I feel, they have a need, you need to meet it. Oh, that hurts. (laughs) That hurts because it exposes my selfishness. It exposes how small a world I really want to live in. You see, if I don't have any of those relationships, I'm just going to do what I want to do for myself and interact with people only when they benefit me. But now I'm in these covenant relationships where that's not an option. So many times over the last couple of years, as Amy and I have talked about these things, she's looked at me and said, I think you have far more capacity to pour into other people's lives than you think you do. And I have to say, she's been proven right. Because when I do stretch, not only does it make me love those people more, but it has also made me a more loving person. The capacity has been stretched, and the stretching hurts, but you find the rubber band's not snapping. God made me to do this. I never would have seen it if the demands of the covenant promises hadn't forced me to stretch. When you think about it, I say this in in most of the weddings that I've ever done. When you think about it, the marriage vows that we make looked at one way are totally ridiculous. Right? They're ridiculous. In other words, how can I promise to be with you for better or worse for life? How can I make that promise when I don't know what worse is going to be? Worse may be a fatal disease. Worse may be a car accident that makes you a quadriplegic. Worse could be so many bad things, and I don't know what that is. So how can I promise that I'm going to pay that cost? You see, if we're thinking about marriage as a consumer relationship, I can't make that promise. I don't know that I have enough money in the bank to pay that debt should it arise. But we don't make marriage vows on the basis of consumer relationships. What we're actually promising is to become the kind of person who will pay whatever cost it takes in order to keep this vow. I'm promising to change. That's what happens when, two couple, when a couple makes those vows to one another. It's giving myself away for your good. The power of promising is the power to change us far more than we would if we didn't have those obligations and we just stayed in a little selfish me world. But there's one more beauty to the aspect of promising, and that is that it shows us God like nothing else. It shows us God like nothing else. There's a couple of things I have in mind here. First, making an all-in covenant commitment to another person is the most God-like way we can function in a relationship because that's what God does with us. Now, it's one thing to receive the benefit of God's grace-giving, totally committed relationship to us, and that is a real experience, but it's another thing to actually put ourselves in his shoes and try to do that for somebody else. You know, they often say you don't really know somebody until you've walked in their shoes. You know, you've, you've seen what it's like from their point of view. You've experienced what they experienced. Then you can more fully know what this person has been through and who they are. And much the same thing is true with God. Because when God's people as a whole came as a mob in the middle of the night to crucify him, and his own disciples deserted him in a self-preserving fear, he stayed at the task. He hung on the cross. He died for those who spat in his face. Why? because he made a covenant relationship promise with his people. I will rescue. I will redeem. And that love is so powerfully demonstrated, the Bible says, in this, while we were still sinners, we weren't even wanting him, we were rejecting him, he still went all the way and gave everything. And we will never know more clearly what that love is and what it cost until we endeavor to give the same kind of love to somebody else. And then you realize, wow, this is hard. Man, this hurts. I may not have the promise that it's going to be returned sufficiently to justify what I'm giving out. I may have to stay in a relationship that is unsatisfying to me. Welcome to the world of your Savior. 
But you know what? It's true that we never know someone as well as we do when we walk in their shoes. But there's another way that, that promising connects us to God. And that is, when you try to walk in God's shoes, you realize you can't do it. <laughs> we don't have it in us. I just don't have it within me to love somebody that unconditionally, that long. And so promising drives us to God in desperation. It connects us to him as we plead for a power to stay at a task that we ourselves don't have the power to possess. German pastor uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Covenant promising is a way to die. It's giving away myself and my future. It's putting it all on the line for the good of another. It's a dying to my me-self, which is why it's so hard. We need to be filled with his power and his love to do it. We're going to end back here in Ephesians chapter 5. I just want to back up to verse 18. So if you're in the book of Ephesians, look back with me at chapter 5, verse 18. This is the, the context for our great passage on marriage. It says, do not be uh, filled with wine or drunk because that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And then it goes on to tell us, being filled with the Spirit, you then do a few things. Addressing one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God in everything. And then now our passage, submitting to one another out of the fear of Christ. And it then goes on and tells wives and husbands how to do that. That's our passage. You see the context? You have to be filled with God's Spirit. You can't pull this off on your own. None of us can. And so I'm trying to be unconditionally loving and I don't have what it takes and suddenly I realize just how desperately I need God and I'm begging God, fill me with your spirit. Give me the strength to take the next faithful step and just do the next right thing. There's always a third person involved in marriage. There's a husband, there's a wife, and there's the God who joined them. We titled this series, Marriage Matters. Um, I almost titled it, It Takes Three to Tango. That seemed a little cheesy, so we just went with Marriage Matters, but that's the idea, right? It actually takes three to tango if we're going to do this marriage thing. I have to have God's presence in my life if I am going to do what is required of me. By the way, that's why in a wedding, like every time I do a wedding, first of all, the couple makes their first vow, not to one another, but to me. Because, see, when I'm doing a wedding, I'm standing in God's place. I'm his representative. And so the first thing I say is, like, here's scripture, husband, uh, groom. This is the standard of your love for this lady. Do you take her according to God's standard to be your wife? And he looks not at her, but at me, and he says, I do. Because what he's doing is he's not promising to Matt Garino. He's promising to God, God, I'm going to do this your way. And the same thing for her. This is the standard, God's standard of your love for him. Do you take him to be your husband? She looks at me and says, yes, I do. Then they turn to one another and make their vows to one another. Making covenant promises will drive us to God like nothing else as we submit to him in awe of his love and beg him to fill us and show us the beauty of this kind of promising. At this point, I want to ask Jim and Kathy to come on up here and we're going to talk a little bit about the power of promising and how that's worked out in um, our marriages, uh, particularly theirs, and so I appreciate you guys uh, coming and joining us this morning. So I want to ask you to just grab those microphones there. Hopefully they're on. You can turn them on if not. So for those of you who don't know, Jim and Kathy have been um, parts of this church for a long time, longer than me. They've been friends of mine for 15 going on years now. And if you don't know them, uh, we've talked quite a bit about what to say. So let me just kind of briefly give you a little backstory that will frame a couple of the questions I want to put to them. Um, both Jim and Kathy were previously married to Susan and Marty, and that's how I met you guys as a different couples. Both Susan and Marty contracted cancer and were eventually ushered by their faithful spouses into eternity. So these people have both ushered spouses through dying and all that grieving process and then met uh, here at the church and married one another 10-ish years ago now? Has it been that long? That's amazing. 10 years ago. I was able to do this wedding, which was just incredibly awesome. Um, so I thought of you guys a lot when I thought about, you know, the power of promising. Um, and one of the things that came up, Jim, let me start with you. Um, we were reflecting on some of the hardship of going through the cancer journey with a spouse. And um, you said that even after Susan's passing, you looked back on the experience of being married to her. Let me say this. 
there's a lot of debits in that account, okay? I mean, the last, especially the last couple of years, there's a lot of anguish, there's a lot of heartache, both you guys dealt with that is obvious to some of us, and then there are other costs you had to pay that probably nobody else even knows about, deeply personal pains and costs. Um, be very easy to look at that as like, wow, that's not worth doing. But you said at one point, the experience was so worth it, you would do it again if you had the opportunity. And the opportunity eventually came along. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about that. Um, one of the reasons you said that that was true is because you came to see God in that whole process. How does that, what did you mean by that? Kind of unpack that for us. Well, the long and short of that uh, answer is that God never gave up on me, and by his grace I never gave up on him. And there were many, many opportunities, uh, especially during the last couple of years of Susan's 10-year bout with cancer, um, numerous kinds of treatments during that period of time. Um, and uh, that, of course, uh, was very trying. And I can't say how many times I turned to him, Susan and I together turned to him, uh, and he was always present and in one way or another answered our prayers. Uh, surely, Susan did finally pass away. Um, we would have liked it to, uh, her life to have continued uh, significantly longer, but we realized, of course, that someday was going to end, and it did end uh, in 2010. But there's more context to it than that, because prior to that 10 years uh, of her illness were 27 years, um, three kids, uh, and a lot of life. I came to faith a year after we were married. Um, <laughs> Part of what God used to show me how much I needed him was my marriage <laughs> and the adjustment that I realized I needed to make but didn't have it in me uh, on my own to do it. And you very well just described the process uh, of marriage and how important and necessary it is to have the power of the Holy Spirit to make the changes that are inevitably required. Well, there was 27 years of that and then another 10 years. And it got more intense in that final 10 years. But I'm here to tell you that um, I was never left alone. We were never left alone. I got to see Susan's faith uh, mature tremendously in that last 10 years in particular. That was... Um, Tremendous blessing, and in and of itself would have made it worth it. Um, and it occurred to me as I was thinking about this that it, uh, Keller makes this point that happiness of the weighty kind is on the other side of these years of marriage, of sinning against one another, repenting, and forgiving, and being forgiven. That whole process echoes what God has done for us. We get to participate in that, and it's in marriage probably the most significant relationship we can experience, what it's like to be Christ-like, forgiving, all of that. More than worth it, yeah. I can tell you at this point. So the climb is really steep, but the view from the top is awesome. So you're like, that climb is worth doing again, right? Yeah, but you don't get the view without doing the climb. That's a great perspective. Um, Kathy, you said something similar in very different words at one point. You said it was you know, extremely difficult leading up to and through Marty's death, um, just demanding tons of sacrifice from you on many levels. Um, and yet, you also said it was deeply fulfilling. I think that was the exact words you used unpack that for us. How is that, what was deeply fulfilling about it? Well, let me say a little backstory like Jim gave. Um, many of you who have known me for a long time know that I have been married three times. Uh, I was married young at 21, and that first marriage lasted 14 years, and uh, two 
beautiful daughters out of that marriage and a lot of hurt and pain. I met Mar uh, Marty, I had Claire, um, and then Marty, after uh, about 10 years of marriage, I guess, we, uh, he uh, was diagnosed with cancer. So I've been through a lot of different relationship things and as a believer through all of it. Um, and when it came to all of these situations, I always knew that the Lord was with me, like Jim said. Um, I wasn't a very mature Christian in my first marriage, but I knew that God wanted me to stay there. And I stayed there through many uh, hurtful situations. And when I met Mar Marty, he was a pretty young believer, and we walked through a lot of stuff. I watched him, and I know you did too, uh, mature in his relationship. And when you're faced with the certainty of a terminal disease, as Susan's was as well, I mean, she had a brain tumor, and they, they're just not curable. It's something you don't know how soon it's going to go. And so you go into life going, well, is it, I thought maybe it was going to be like three months and he'd be gone. Hmm. And they're like, oh, no, you know, people can live a little longer. Well, you know, he lived about six years, and five of them he lived fairly normally. The last year was when the cancer figured out a way around the medication. But those were times that were beyond stretching. Um, I can remember many times just going, Lord, you're going to have to get me through this day. And, and of course, Marty, those who, of you who knew Marty, he was just such a kind soul and never complained about anything. And to, to bring him through, I mean, there's a moment where he's laying in his hospital bed in, in, um, we had in our home because we had him on hospice where he looked up to, at me and he said, I'm going to love you forever. <laughs> and I just, I was so grateful for that because that was the kind of love that God demonstrated to me <laughs> through this man, even though he was leaving. I knew God fully loved me then <laughs> and to the point about just, you know, bringing him through this period of time was was actually a joy. It was it was hard. It was something that only God could do. But knowing that he was going on to be with his heavenly Father and he was surrounded by his friends, it just felt when he left in the morning about four. I was praising God. You don't do that without the Holy Spirit. You just don't. I mean, I didn't feel crushed by his death. I didn't feel abandoned. It was, that's, that's how I felt. I tell people often about that experience and I work in a hospice organization for that very reason because I want people to understand how God works in life and death. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So you guys have both had a chance to see some pretty intense stuff through very, very great difficulty. And then by God's grace, uh, met and married each other with this wonderfully deep perspective. So that's clearly led to a marriage that is devoid of flaws and problems and conflicts, right? <laughs> We've graduated, we, yes. <laughs> well, yes. We, we are the experts, we, okay? <laughs> okay, now I'm going to tell them what you told me a minute ago. Uh, so when we were talking about this, we talked, I was like, so what are some of the conflicts? And you guys laughed and came up with one and asked for permission to share it, and so you did. So I'll, I'll briefly tell the scenario, because it's very typical of all of us, and then I want you guys to reflect on it. Um, we talked about the power of promising to create, you know, intimacy and to create space and safety. So um, one of the daily conflicts that apparently comes up is that, I, I guess I've learned, you're not always super happy when you're in the car with him and he's driving. I'm not happy with any driving. And not happy with any driving, but he hears it as his driving, right? Okay, so, and that gets expressed, I understand this. I'm dying to be in the back seat, by the way, one of these days yeah. when this happens. But, uh, and that was, I guess, a significant source of tension in the early days of the marriage that um, you had to respond to. So, Jim, let me, let me just start with you. I mean, you said that initially um, when that kind of thing would happen, she would express fear of watch out or don't do this or something. You'd be getting irritated and even angry, um, 
So at that moment, you have a choice. What are you going to do with that? How did you choose to respond, and how has that, what impact has that had on you over time? Initially, I yelled back. <laughs> uh, occasionally, yes, I experienced irritation, and, and uh, I, uh, I questioned the covenant at that point. <laughs> to tell the truth, you know, the honest You're truth right here. I, how, did I, how did I miss this when we were recording? <laughs> I, uh, but at any rate, um, uh, yeah, for a variety of reasons. But but it 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 kept on going, and um, eventually I realized one of those changes hmm. in marriage was was going to be needed on my part. And I eventually came to understand more and more why Kathy was doing that. And I'll let her explain from her standpoint sure. why that is. But. Um, I was trying to put myself in her shoes um, by, again, uh, power of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and, uh, and over time have become much more um, uh, patient with that, and it doesn't bother me nearly as much most of the time. <laughs> so the shift went from, is this fair to say, um, from what you're feeling in that moment, which is irritation, criticism, whatever, to what is she feeling? Where's this coming from? Was that part of the shift that made you more patient? How would you describe that process just in your own mind? Well, very much so. Um, it wasn't only with driving that this uh, manifested itself. Um, it, there's a, it's a fear-based uh, response on her part. And so as I gradually came to appreciate that more and more, my desire was to try to help with that, and responding with irritation or anger wasn't helping. I'm shocked. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, I, I sound so much calmer saying this <laughs> than experiencing it. But at any rate, yes, that's, that's where it has come. Yeah. And, so it helps to be much uh, more patient, kind. Mm. Kindness is a part of uh, responding to. So what did this look like from your perspective? What was going on and how did you experience oh all my. that? Oh my. Well, number one, I mean, it's like people have anxiety. It, it, if you don't have it, it's hard to understand it. Mm. And I didn't recognize that I had all these fears until I married Jim. And that is not Jim's fault. <laughs> It's really not. You really brought out the best in her. I know. You did. So a little... A quick in front little, of all these people, know, really? Right? <laughs> we'll do the counseling session after church is over. But carry on, Kathy, This please. is a great counseling session, by the way. Um, so what I've learned o over the years with Jim is that when he was young, he was an outdoorsman, and he has been since that time. And he actually wanted to be, as a profession an outdoor expert and, you know, in wilderness training and that kind of thing. Well, I knew that about him, and I love being outside. I'm very, you know, I like to be athletic. I like to think of myself as athletic. Well, we've done a lot of things in our marriage that I never did before. Well, I went fishing with my dad a lot, but the, these kind of fishing trips we're taking down, you know, the Middle Fork of the Salmon River, the Rogue River, and the first experience I had was being in pitch blackness, and I had a panic attack in the middle of the night. And I'd never experienced that. And he was, he kind of woke up and went, oh, you want me to come over there and, you know, get in bed with you? And, and you know, like he was going to comfort me. I'm like, no, no, don't come anywhere <laughs> near me. I'm claustrophobic, apparently, too. <laughs> and so I knew I had a fear of heights. So, like, if any of you see our Facebook pages when I go up, we just came back from Sedona. And I love to hike. But when we get to places where we're, you know, in this position, like, he took me out to King Mountain, if anybody knows where that is, out on Highway 6. Oh, it's a two-mile hike. <laughs> We're up there scrambling. and the, I am so mad by the time we get to the top of the road. This poor guy. He, there's no way he would have ever known this. <laughs> and I came to... Re, what, what happened with me was I felt like he's not going to be there for me. He's going to abandon me. That's how I felt. <laughs> And I know that's not true, and I came to recognize that, wait, he, what he eventually we got around to talking about was the fact that he's like, well, in my training, we were taught that you, you need to just do it. You need to go through it. 
And when you go through it, you'll learn how to survive. <laughs> and I'm like, but I'm not a 10-year-old. You know, I'm not a, you know, I'm your wife. You need to come and save me when I'm stuck in Scapoos Bay in the mud in my kayak. And you're sitting out there and, I'm, and you're telling me, well, just get out of the kayak and maybe you can walk the boat over. Um, yeah, it's quicksand. Sorry. <laughs> so, you know, we've had these... <laughs> So, yeah, there's no way he would know that. And there was no way he would know that about me. But when we recognized, and we had these aha moments about, oh, okay, that's where you're coming from. Um, now we joke about saying, every tub on its own bottom. That's the, you know, you're on your own. Hmm. But we know we're not on our own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we appreciate that aspect of yeah. our having been able to work, but you got to work towards one another. My tendency, because of my past hurts and trust issues, was like, okay, fine. I'm not going to trust. I, I know you're not going to be there, so I won't even rely on you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that feeling. It was like, that's not, that's not where God wants me to be. Mm -hmm. And so I began to talk about it, and we both talked about it and mm -hmm. understand. So his better. commitment makes him more open to what you're doing in the process of that. And I'm trying not to be a nervous driver. Yeah. I really am trying. <laughs> yeah, and, and then that allows yeah. you to yes. understand more Absolutely. of these fears. Where is this yeah. coming from in myself, mm -hmm. knowing that he's not going to abandon you in the process of that? So you both end up discovering things and changing. Um, as simple as that is, because I'm sure nobody else in here fights with their spouse when they're driving or whatever, but, you know... What a great illustration of, of a deeper reality of, yeah, promising creates an environment of safety where we can grow and learn. Um, I actually want to continue this, but our time is out, so I just need to wrap it up. But I want to thank you guys for just coming up here and just sharing a little honestly. Um, I want to pray for you guys, for our church, uh, ask our music team to come back up here to close our service and song. God, thank you so much for the fact that you promised to come rescue us and stayed through all the way to the end, even when you were abandoned um, by all of us. And that creates an environment for us to know you love us and to come back and experience your love. So um, I thank you for Jim and Kathy and how they have experienced that, for their willingness to share that with some of us. I pray for every one of us in this room to experience your love, um, the love that human marriage points to, the most important relationship we have, married or not, which is with you. And lastly, God, we just continue to pray for our own marriages, those up and coming, those that are existing. God, would you bring healing? Would you bring trust? Would you help each one of us, especially who are in a marriage, to see where we we can change, where we can commit in order to be more like you and rely on you in the process of doing that. God, it's for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.